Hello. Yes, this week I'm coming to you once again from my home recording studio, since I'm still testing positive for COVID. While watching the, the news this week, I, I saw this story. Good evening and thank you for joining us. We begin with a horrifying swarming attack on a teenage girl in Surrey. The assault was captured on video and has triggered a police investigation. A warning, some viewers will find this story and the images disturbing. If you saw the video that went with this story, then you'll know why the mother of the 15-year-old victim called the attack and the attackers disgusting. No wonder she's crying out desperately for justice. It would be bad enough if this was an isolated incident, but the increase in frequency of this kind of attack and others is deeply disturbing. Now I mention this story because the stories that we're going to look at today in the closing section of the book of Judges, and I encourage you to turn to it, they have elements that are equally, well actually even more disgusting. If you've never read them, then I need to warn you, its content is deeply disturbing. Which is probably a, a major reason why I've never heard a sermon on these final chapters in the book of Judges. One commentator called this section the death of morality. And I'm inclined to agree with that assessment. For in these chapters, every one of the Ten Commandments is broken, not by godless Canaanites, but by supposedly God-fearing Israelites. Especially the two main characters that we will meet are Levites, priests. Now, the tribe of Levi had been given a very special assignment in Israel. The Old Testament book of Leviticus spells out all of their duties, but chapter 10, and especially verse 11, summarizes their basic role as this. To teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. And the prophet Malachi, he summarizes it as well in Malachi 1 verse 7. He says, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. That is, God's word should be on their lips, teaching and instructing others. Well, keep this in mind while we're taking a walking tour through the, the closing chapters to see how the Levites are doing it, teaching God's word, and how the people are doing it, keeping it. The moral standard, you see, that the writer expects his readers to know and to have are the, the big ten, for sure, that God gave to Moses. You remember the Big Ten? Yeah, the Ten Commandments. Here's just a, a reminder in case you couldn't quite remember. And they're all found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. God gave these Big Ten because he knows they are essential and foundational for human flourishing to happen. The implication and application of these standard rules of behavior for a healthy society are spelled out in greater detail in the book of the law, which is Deuteronomy. And it applies them to every area of life. What does it look like spiritually, morally, socially, politically, financially, judicially? Well, Israel's history, then from Deuteronomy to the end of 2 Kings, is told in the light and standards of the worldview and laws spelled out in Deuteronomy. The double introduction of the book of Judges that we looked at when we started this series is here balanced by a double conclusion. Well, it's like bookends. 
whereas the introductions were given to explain the reasons for Israel's political and spiritual decline, the conclusions reveal the climactic and chaotic results. Also, while the double introduction focuses on the external threats that faced Israel, the double conclusion focuses on the internal threats that brought them to ruin. Both the first conclusion in chapters 17 to 18 and the second conclusion in chapters 19 to 21 feature personal stories and problems that spread like a pandemic, multiplying and engulfing an entire city, an entire tribe, and ultimately the whole nation. The speed and scope of this corruption seems almost unbelievable until we realize it mirrors the many external and internal threats facing the church today, spiritually and morally. Increasingly, Christians are getting swept up into secular ways of thinking and behaving, to the point where they are often, as one writer said, living more as an extension of the secular world today rather than as a distinct light to it. For example, so many are adopting the radical individualism and materialism of these obsessions of our culture. Christians also tend to mirror our culture's perspective on sexuality, identity, and social issues. And there's a whole group, an increasing group, that call themselves progressive Christians, who give more weight and authority to the current cultural narratives than they do to the biblical narratives. I'll say more about this later. Let's begin with the first episode of chapter 17. And as we read these verses, keep your moral standard handy. Remember, at least the Big Ten and the book of Deuteronomy. And watch for these being kept or broken by an ordinary but well-to-do family in Israel. Let's read Judges chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man, Micah, had a shrine and, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Did you uh, see or hear any problems? Is this a law-abiding family or not? Well, they've noticed first Micah steals from his own mother, uh, breaking the fourth commandment and also the eighth commandment not to steal. At the fourth commandment, you're supposed to honor your father and mother, and then you're not supposed to covet, command number 10. And notice why he's returning it. It's troubling, not because he fears God or feels guilty, but because He's afraid of the curse that his mother, you know, said. It's kind of like, oh, it's bad karma. Or uh, it's like voodoo, magical. And he makes no restitution. That is, in Leviticus chapter 6, 
when you have stolen something, you're supposed to give it all back plus a fifth. And then you're supposed to make a guilt offering to the Lord. Well, he doesn't do any of those things. And his mother's response to her son, it's weird. The Lord bless you, my son? What she's trying to do is neutralize the power of the curse that she's uttered. And she misuses the Lord's name, command number three, and his reputation by blessing a thief because it's her own son. Well, she solemnly consecrates her silver to the Lord for her son to make an image, an idol. Uh, commandment number two, no other gods. And she gives only 200 of the 1,100 pieces of silver that she had solemnly consecrated to the Lord. And when the silversmith is finished making the idol, they put it in Micah's house. Uh, breaking commands one and two. I mean, Micah makes a homemade shrine with even more household gods, more commands broken, and he installs one of his sons as priest. Uh, problem, only the Levites were supposed to be priests, and only at the official center of worship, as Deuteronomy 12 spells out very clearly. How, we wonder, could a family like Micah's get away with what they're doing? Well, in verse 6 gives the answer, in those days... Israel had no king, that is, no covenant-keeping king. Everyone did as they saw fit, or what was right in his or her own eyes. Now, let's look at episode 2, verses 7 to 10. This scene features a young Levite in search of a new home and career. And when he shows up at Micah's house and is asked where he is from, he tells Micah that he's a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. That is, from a non-Levitical town. Basically, he's become a free agent, which should be a problem because he's supposed to be under contract to the Lord and serving at his center of worship. But Micah, oh, he doesn't see a problem. He sees an opportunity, an opportunity for an upgrade for his little shrine. The young Levite and him strike a deal that is right in each of their own eyes. As commentator Lawson Younger notes, having a genuine Levite as a priest gives Micah's shrine an air of legitimacy and prestige. You see, he may be a heretic, but now Micah he's a, has a heretic working for him who has a PhD. Oh, that sounds legitimate. Verse 13 now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. Oh, what he is doing appears to be working for him. And what he's really doing is misinterpreting what's happening as God's blessing on him, even though he's acted way out of line with God's word. In chapter 18, Micah's misplaced confidence will be uh, it'll be overturned by a rogue tribe who surpass Micah in their ability to play fast and loose with the law. Uh, the tribe of Dan, the, the tribe who failed miserably with their attempt to take the, their portion of the promised land, well, they will search, uh, search for an easier area. And along the way, their five spies that they send out meet Micah's priest. And they ask if they have God's blessing for their plan. And he'll say, approved, even though God's word 
is clearly against it. So they'll spy it out and they will find a peaceful and defenseless city, Laish, to take, since it, it'll look good in their eyes. But later on, they go back and then on their way back to, to take Lachish with their whole army, the Israelites stop at Micah's shrine again with his personal priest. And instead of anyone being disturbed at what Micah has done, oh, they're all delighted. And, and they decide to take and keep Micah's shrine at gunpoint. Actually, spear point it is. And Micah's young Levite priest, well, he's as opportunistic as they are. And in verse 20, it says he was very pleased. He's pleased to become a priest over a whole tribe instead of just over one family. Well, the Danites complete their conquest against the peaceful and defenseless people in Laish. And they set up for themselves the idol, that is Micah's idol, and the young priest who we now discover is Moses' grandson. I mean, it's like, oh, it's the grandson of Billy Graham. Who wouldn't want him for a, you know, a pastor? Well, they think, once again, they have got it made. And, uh, and like Micah, they think that what they have done is clearly blessed and endorsed by the Lord. You know, when I was reading this, I, I couldn't help but think of the parallels between what the Danites did and what Christopher Columbus and the other European powers did when they discovered America. They asked for and received the Pope's blessing to declare all the territories that they discovered as empty land for the taking. Now, how is that possible? when they had been met and welcomed by tribes of indigenous people. And estimates put the number of people in the Americas at this time as up to 100 million indigenous peoples throughout the Americas. And yet, the Pope declared them to be savages, not people. So the discoverers were free to claim all the, plant, all the land that they found in the name of the crown. And we have that today at Crown Lands. This doctrine of discovery as it is still being used against indigenous peoples in Canada and around the world, what seemed good in the eyes of the colonial powers is evil in the eyes of the God, is it not? Well, we come now to the second conclusion in chapters 19 to 21. Structurally, the second conclusion is made up of five episodes, but we'll need to limit ourselves primarily to the first, which repeats the abbreviated form of the refrain that we have will become familiar with in these chapters. You see, in, in chapters 1 to 16, the introductory refrain to each episode was, once again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's formula A. In Judges 17 to 21, the corresponding formula is, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. That's formula B. The long form is used for the first and last um, verses in this concluding section. And the shortened form, just in those days Israel had no king, is used twice in the middle section. 
Now, the contrast between formula A and formula B is critically important. I mean, when, when seen and assessed through the eyes of the Lord, their actions are evil. But the same actions seen and assessed through the eyes of the Israelites? Oh, that's right. Oh. Let's look at these final chapters. These final chapters are confusing to many readers because they describe events like the rape of a concubine with what appears to be an absence of commentary on it. You know, the writer isn't saying, oh, this is evil. But all the commentary that we need is given in Deuteronomy, remember? If you know God's word, you will read the story the way we read about Micah and the Levite in chapter 17. If we don't know God's word, we'll be left trying to assess what is right or wrong in our own eyes. It's the same when it comes to our personal and our corporate lives. After all, in life, we don't have God giving us commentary, constant commentary on what is right or wrong. Or do we? The Bible shows and tells us the great lengths God went to to reveal himself and his will to us in the Bible. He gave these commands and instructions and stories to guide us in the way, in his way. His way that leads to life. Because Proverbs 14 verse 12 says, There is a way that appears to be right, that is in our eyes, but in the end it leads to death. Judges is an extended commentary on that verse. God's plan has always been for us to learn to see and assess everything through the standard of his word. Through his eyes, through God's moral lenses that he has given to us through his word. When we neglect this word or deliberately ignore it, things go wrong. Horribly wrong. We may not realize it right away like Micah and the young priest and the tribe of Dan didn't. And interpret what is happening to us according to our own wisdom. But we do so to our own harm and the harm of those around us. That is what the writer wants us to see in these final section of Judges. Let's turn to Judges chapter 19. The second conclusion also begins with a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim. It's the same area as the one was from in chapter 17. But notice this Levite, he's older, perhaps more mature. His concubine was unfaithful to him and left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem. Hmm. After she had been there four months, her husband went to persuade her to return. Notice he goes there with his servants and two donkeys, which tells us he expects and is prepared to bring her home. She and her father gladly welcomed him and show him great hospitality day after day. He finally, though, decides it's time to leave. I was encouraged to stay, oh, a bit longer, which he does, but then finally calls it a day and leaves for home. But leaving late in the day, it's a problem because he can't make it home from there without having to stay overnight somewhere along the way. His servant goes over his options with him. Option one, go to a closer but Canaanite city where they can, that they can reach before sunset. Or two, go to Gibeah, an Israelite city, but it's going to be hard, virtually impossible to reach by sunset. Which one? Well, the Levite chooses the safer option among fellow Israelites. But when 
They get there, and it's after sunset, notice in verse 14, and they sit in the public square with their sign, lodging needed. We read that no one took them in for the night. That's strange. Eventually, though, an old man, on his way in from his work in the fields, sees him and asks him where he's going and where he's from. Being a Levite, on his way to the house of the Lord, he says, he of all people should have been shown hospitality. But he wasn't. And he's even traveling. He says, fully stocked and, and doesn't need a thing. I'm not going to be a burden to anyone. Well, the old man says in verse 20, you're welcome at my house. And he in, offers to supply whatever you need. Only, he says, don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house. Well, better late than never, right? But, in verse 22, while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house and began pounding on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Wow. That, does that sound like the kind of welcome you've ever heard of in any other town or city mentioned in the Bible? Sodom. Yeah, Genesis 19. Uh, notice the similarities there and differences. It says all of these wicked people in Sodom and, and some in Gibeah. But notice the difference that Sodom was Canaanite. Gibeah is Israelite. Now, one commentator I read, he thinks the people in Gibeah, oh, they were only being friendly. It's a, a mis- representation in a mistranslation. And I wonder, is he naive or ignorant of God's word? Because in verse 23, the owner of the house, he isn't naive or ignorant, and says to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. It's the word evil in Hebrew. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. That is, it's a morally outrageous thing. Notice how clear his evaluation of their behavior is. Yet, look at what he says and does next in verse 24. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the wicked men, beginning to wonder which wicked men, uh, would not listen to reason. So the man, that is the Levite in this case, does what he thinks is most reasonable in this situation. And he sends his concubine out to the wolves, who raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. Somehow she manages to get back to the door where her master was staying, but she collapses at the door. Now if you thought her master was callous, just wait, it gets worse. In the morning, it's clear that he's ready to go without her. He thinks she's a goner. But when he goes to step out the door, <gasps> there she is. And his response? Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. So the man, or the beast, I'm thinking, put her on his donkey and set out for home. We're still left wondering, is she dead or alive? Well, when he gets home, 
He dismembers her limb by limb into 12 parts and sent her into all areas of Israel. Uh, I'm still thinking, no commentary? This is evil. The first words we hear are from the people when they receive what was parceled out to them. Verse 30, everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. Oh, and they do something, all right. They all, it says, came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. This is the first time in the book of Judges they've all come together before the Lord. But they do not do a proper investigation. They take what the old Levite did as the only testimony. And he conveniently refers to himself in, in 20 verse 4 as the husband of the murdered woman. And he makes sure that he comes out as the victim. He gives false testimony, exonerates himself, calls what others did, this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. And he acts like the judge before the jury. Speak and tell me what you have decided to do, he says. I mean, the whole thing goes off totally off the rails, and neither the callous old Levite nor the horrified journey see what he did to his concubine as equally lewd and outrageous. And no one, it seems, can see the problems with the lewd and outrageous things that they will do and justify in the name of doing justice in the final chapter. They will use the cover of the Lord's festival to approve the Benjamite men, the tribe they've almost wiped out, kidnapping young virgin women from some of their fellow Israelites. <sighs> and they think they have solved the problem and done justice. Well, the shock of this entire scandal at Gibeah, said uh, one commentator, did not pass quickly becoming instead an ugly benchmark in Israel's history. Well, I want to look at what I think are at least three lessons here in this closing conclusion of Judges. The first is, morality dies without God. Morality dies without God. By this I mean godly morality dies. For, as we see, people are prone to make their own selective moralities and even call things that are immoral moral and things that are moral they call immoral. As psychiatry professor Glenn Harrison points out in his book that I just started reading, A Better Story, he says the sexual revolution did not persuade, West, persuade Westerners to abandon morality. It showed them how to think differently about right and wrong and to feel differently about it. That is, good about doing bad things, bad about doing good things. The rejection of external authority and the free expression of sexual interests has become a kind of moral good. But downstream of the sexual revolution, well, there are terrible consequences. There is not human flourishing, but failures piling up. And we just seem to refuse to see it. Well, a second lesson. God wants and expects justice for all. God wants and expects justice for all, for all people, for men and women, yes, for the elderly and the unborn, 
for indigenous and non-indigenous peoples, justice for all. He uses his same standards for justice for everyone, and he expects us to as well. You see, real justice differs from personal revenge. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, God sets up the rule of law. And this is what he says to, uh, through Moses. He says, I charge your judges at this time, hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. It's very clear. God wants and expects justice for all. And, and thirdly, discipleship is essential to prevent truth decay. Discipleship is essential to prevent truth decay. You see, the massive failure in Judges was the failure to teach and disciple the next generation. Judges, chapter 2, verse 10. It said, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then it begins going terribly off the rails. And we see the full downstream effect of this in these conclusion to Judges. External truth decay today is made worse by truth decay taking place within the church. I've been reading recently about the rise of progressive Christianity under people like uh, John Pavlovitz, who, by the way, went from former fired megachurch pastor to a rising star of the religious left. He said, Progressive Christianity has no sacred cows, only the restless, sacred search for truth. Tradition, dogma, and doctrine are all fair game because all pass through the hands of flawed humanity and as such are equally vulnerable to the prejudices, fears, and biases of those it touched. Pavlovitz gives more weight to his own judgments about Scripture than he does to Scripture's judgments about him. Well, discipleship is essential to prevent truth decay, which is one of the ways to do that is to learn the standard that God has given us. I know David Lee recently uh, gave an overview of the Bible, and he's planning to do that again, and I hope this time his class is packed out. We need to not only know, but to ingrain the full Word of God to guide us in the God's way. Let's close in prayer together. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the only wise God. Lord, we love to hear about your plans for human flourishing, to hear of how things turn out wonderfully when people follow your ways. But Lord, the whole story also shows and tells us what happens when people neglect you, when they do what is right in their own eyes. Oh Lord, we confess that we are a people who so often does just what is right in our own eyes. 
which in your eyes is evil. Lord, we confess it, we repent of it, and we ask that you would lead us in the way that really does lead to life. For your glory and for the good of all your people. Amen. Thank you, Heather, for leading us in worship. That was hard to plan, and yet God spoke to us through his word and through the music. And I just encourage you uh, to go in the dualistic reality that our world is dark, and yet the true vision is the hope and the light that we have through Jesus. If you'd like to pray, we have a prayer team that meets uh, here every Sunday after the service. There's always somebody here to pray for you. So uh, I think Travis is here today. And if you would like prayer for something or you want to, to pray a praise item, you are more than welcome. You can always grab somebody on the uh, a leadership team too. I'm always available. David Lee is always available to pray. Rob is here. Catherine is here. If there's someone here and you don't want to wait to grab one of us, and we would be happy to pray with you. Benediction, actually, I'd like you to read again Romans 15, 13 for me, because I think that is the perfect benediction to go in. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, trusting him that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Amen.